Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. I have to start tonight's program with a, a note. Uh, uh, about a year ago, we had on this program uh, the founder of a uh, of, of an offering called uh, Bid for Spots, which essentially was a program for small businesses who want to buy a radio time in their local uh, area or nationwide. Well. It, Someone came to us with a problem. We recommended them uh, to, uh, the company to them, and I was just amazed at the follow-up that went on from the first uh, first moment that uh, we talked to them till they till they went on the air. And I just want to say, uh, customer service is the number one uh, way small businesses differ, and this was a great example of it. But uh, now on to our next guest, Dave Sweet. Uh, he, he's the organizer, I love this, of Whiskey Live. And for all you connoisseurs, it is a great, and he'll tell you about it. But and, uh, he, he's here to talk about event participation and how small businesses can generate sales by participating. Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Don. Well, Dave, we always ask, um, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get into anything else. Um, my background is a little bit sorted. Uh, my education is in engineering, and I've actually one of those few people that worked in engineering for a little bit, stepped away, did some other things, and wound up taking over a family business as a publisher's rep firm which is how I got into whiskey. Uh, one of our clients was Whiskey Magazine and got a phone call one day uh, saying, uh, are you going to be in New York in April? And I said, no, <laughs> I can be. And that was my first invite to Whiskey Live and uh, threw my head in the ring to, to, uh, take, to run the events the following year because our home base is out of uh, the U.K. and uh, was promptly... Uh, passed over, so to speak, for another uh, colleague in the industry, stayed on it, and through a course of events, um, I went from running the events to now owning all the events and being the, uh, uh, the partner for North America. So I also run an event in Canada, and uh, uh, through a, a series of, uh, of developments, I also uh, basically am the U.S. publisher for Whiskey Magazine as well. So I took over all of our operations 
but it was a matter of uh, seizing a moment and uh, coming out. Well, that certainly is the case. But what is Whiskey Live? Um, well, first, uh, it, it's a tasting event set up just like a wine tasting. We always wrestle with that uh, language barrier in the U.S. Whiskey is bourbon, scotch, Irish whiskey, craft whiskeys, whiskeys from around the world. It's, it's a tasting event, just like going to a wine tasting and having tables set up and tasting a Merlot or a Cab or a, a Zinfandel or whatever is there. We do the same thing. So we'll have premium scotches, bourbons, Irish whiskeys, craft whiskeys, and whiskeys from around the world. So it's a tasting event. <laughs> it's a, uh, I'm not a big drinker, but it would just seem to me that you better make sure you're taking a taxi home from this event. What the the idea is, and those are available, but the idea is that it's a sampling event. So it's a full dinner buffet, and there's some entertainment and everything. So it's a night out, um, and and we do uh, stack the buffet in our favor. It's always very very full and heavy food, but it's sampling. It's just a uh, one small taste. Um, uh, and the idea is to go and find things you like and find things you don't like. And instead of uh, going out and spending hundreds of dollars to find that you still haven't found anything you like, you come to one event, talk to the experts, get coached. Uh, all the language is just like wine. They have finishes and all the, the nose and the, the flavor profiles. And, um, uh, and it's, it's a phenomenal event, but it's not about uh, drinking as much as sampling. Okay, I'm a small business. Um, uh, maybe I have a small distillery here. But what are the advantages of uh, attending, of being a participant in an event like this or at other events? Why do people uh, go to these, uh, uh, become vendors in this event? And that's, that's, Don, to be honest, that's exactly my area of expertise and why I took over Whiskey Live. As a publisher's rep, that's all we did was consumer shows and trade shows. Uh, and our company did about 200 a year. Um, it's a chance to be in front of new consumers um, and some industry. But the, if you were to go and solicit these consumers, you're advertising, you're promoting, you're doing a lot of hit or miss. Here you're at a, at a venue in a place where all your consumers, your people that are interested in your uh, business are there. They're paying to be there. They're there intentionally, so it's not a hit or miss, hitting 10% of your market kind of thing. 100% of the people at that show are your clients or potential clients. Um, do, they, uh, do these people, do they, if, for instance, in your event, do they pay to be, uh, participate? Uh, to be uh, uh, patrons? The exhibitors? Uh, no, well, I, I was to the exhibitors, but uh, well, let's talk about the exhibitors first. Yes. Yes, the, the, the booth space is uh, commensurate uh, with any other trade show. Um, so it will range, uh, you know, the, the regular uh, space cost is actually rather pricey. It's about $2,700 for the evening but you're in front of aficionados and the answer to your other question and enthusiasts, people that are paying 120 to $150 per person for the evening to not only sample different whiskeys, but also talk to the experts and get coached in uh, how to sample, how to taste, what to look for, finding new favorites and so on. Well, let's talk a, a, a little about that. Uh, 
what does let's talk of I always thought bourbon was an American uh, a drink, but I I'm told that it's also very much a, an English drink. What does a, a person look for in a, a bourbon drink uh, that that uh, they that indicates it's a um, it's a good bourbon, etc. What separates a quality bourbon from an average bourbon? Yeah, that, um, thank you. I wish I could have framed that question. No worries. Uh, to be honest with you, your your own flavor profile. Now, yes, there are certain finishes. Uh, bourbon is is all to be bourbon has to be made in the United States with new oak. So you should taste a certain amount of the wood, certain amount of the flavor, but what will differentiate bourbon is how much rye and and how much how many of what other malts are in it and so forth. So you're going to look for some people like something a little bit rye, more rye or a little bit earthy. Some people like more wood. So good and bad bourbon very often is a matter of taste. Um, we run the World Whiskey Awards with Whiskey Magazine. What differentiates that winner for the World Whiskey Awards for Best Bourbon. It's smoothness, something that you don't have this this burn, you know, this obnoxious burn or too much phenol flavor. So there's a there's a flavor characteristic that bourbon should have and it should be that flavor characteristic, but it should be smooth and the flavors will keep coming. They'll change and they'll develop. And that's where you really get a premium bourbon. And it does not have to be expensive. It can, well, there are a lot of good bourbons out there that are thirty and forty dollars a bottle, or even less. Well, okay, these these people have paid a lot of money to be there, uh, and they they reach the patrons. But one of the things that I've always seen about events is that exhibitors oftentimes don't follow up. Have you found out to be the case, and and how do you deal with it? Um, that is absolutely the case, and especially with a, a tasting event. But I, I've seen this across all industries, um, and, and this is the, the hidden gem of, of all events. Uh, when you come in and you taste something, a, a lot of the brands will have handout cards. Um, we provide a show brochure, so anybody that's at the event, if they really want to leave a lasting impression, they'll have... Uh, exposure or an ad or something in the brochure they'll give them uh, different paraphernalia uh, makers mark uh, will have their own glass bullet bourbon has their own glass a lot of the scotch companies will so people have something to take home and remember that product by because you can't take any of the whiskey home at all the only way it goes home is if it's in your if, if it's in you so uh, uh, do you provide back well, let's talk about that. Do you provide bags or something for uh, uh, the patrons? Yes, just like like most trade shows or industry shows, uh, there is always something to take the paraphernalia, uh, uh, the point of sale or POS material home with you, as well as the show guide, which of course lists all the brands and all the exhibitors and uh, in the different whiskeys. We'll make a note if there's an award-winning whiskey there and, and so forth. But, um, and, and that way they'll, they'll go back and look at it. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the bags. Uh, you know, uh, I've come across a lot of small businesses uh, who are at shows for the first time or even for a long time. And, and we, we've always talked about the idea, uh, should, uh, does it pay to be on the uh, bag? 
uh, on the bag advertisement. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's it's a it's a very tough call. Um, we have we have different companies that uh, want to sponsor different aspects or or have their product out there. To be honest, what we have found to be one of the most effective. Uh, things to sponsor at a show like that are the pens because the pens people will take home they'll put them in their pocket the bag is very effective a lot of it has to do with the quality of the bag if you're just looking to get your name out there and and have it out there um then the bag is very effective people are walking by and it'll say whiskey live sponsored by oi glass let's say um but if you are looking to leave a lasting impression, then it helps if that bag, let's say, was a canvas bag, something that people will use over and over. And that's the whole key is have that point of sale or that product that they're taking home with them uh, to be used over and over, which, which we do. And that's why I said the pens are probably the best and most effective use of uh, uh, a POS material or a take-home product because people will use it till it dries out. Well, uh, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about another issue that people, um, you know, uh, sometimes people uh, are so. When you walk by a booth, some sometimes people are extremely ag- aggressive, or they totally couldn't care about you. I, uh, I used to have a friend uh, many years ago, who when he manned the booth, uh, his first question always was, "What What are you here for?" What are good techniques for manning an exhibit booth, uh, or, or for that matter, handing out uh, something as valuable as whiskey? Uh, it's interesting you ask that question. And uh, to side note, with the other magazine publishing business, that is all we did, and I have spent tens of thousands of hours doing that. You have to engage the customer, or you have to engage the attendee in a question that elicits a response but is relevant to the show that you're at. Uh, I know a lot of people will, will target something uh, if they're wearing a Red Sox hat and say, hey, how are the Sox doing these days? He's not there or she's not there to chat with you. The idea is to, to engage them in the question. So in the event of a Whiskey Live, if you are representing a bourbon and you're going to be a little assertive, then the idea is to engage them. Have you ever tried XYZ bourbon? Are you a bourbon drinker? What bourbon do you normally drink? If you're at a, um, a trade show for insurance, it's the same type of thing. What type of insurance do you have? Ask a question that elicits a response. And if you're overly aggressive, you'll turn people off. The idea is to be friendly. And you're absolutely right. Dude, somebody who sits in the booth with their arms crossed is driving traffic away. They're saying, I don't want to be here. I don't want to talk to you. Go give your money to somebody else. Well, now Whiskey Live is two weeks from tonight. Yes. Uh, and, um, and where, February twenty fifth on Wednesday night. Do you have a website? Absolutely. It's whiskeylive dot com, and it's a European spelling because of our roots. So it's W H I S K Y L I V E. The E is classic to American whiskey and Irish whiskey. So it's well, whiskey live. Uh, I stepped on your line. Please continue. No, no, it's yeah, it's whiskey live, all one word dot com. www whiskey live, 
and then it'll, that'll be our global site. And just click on the United States, and it'll come up, and it's very easy to navigate right to the New York show. And then two weeks later, we have our launch in Washington, D.C. Well, uh, it, I, uh, I hope our audience has uh, uh, learned enough about it. it. Before you leave, let me ask you, um, uh, what are the three things you always tell your your people when, when manning a booth or exhibit? First of all, the smile. Nobody wants to talk to a sourpuss. Uh, they're there at that show to either do business or to have fun, and uh, you've got to portray that. They will feed on your energy. Your energy, ener positive energy, is so transferable. And the other thing is when you, you have to actually close the sale. And, and, and we, what we would do is we would very gently and very smoothly put that order pad down and put the pen down. The pen is the hot potato. So you pass that pen or that writing utensil or keyboard to the client, and that is the closer of the sale. Absolutely. So it's high energy, it's positive energy, and then get to the point and close it. You've got about 45 seconds to keep their attention. Great advice. And I'm really glad that you uh, came, came and jo joined us tonight. And I look forward to uh, in two weeks. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Don. We'll look forward to seeing you. Right. Cheers. And our, our next guest should be Winthrop H. Smith, Jr., when are you on the on? Yes, I am. I'm so glad. I, I I took a chance when I said Win because every Winthrop I've ever met has been nicknamed Win. <laughs> you got it right. Thank you very much. Well, you you certainly have. Um, I'm old enough to remember when it was Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, and before that, Bean. It is, uh, and actually, it still is Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith under the ownership of Bank of America. Well, uh, that, that's true. Uh, well, I hadn't realized that. I just, I just remember always seeing that long name on the end of the envelope, on the upper <laughs> left of the envelope. Uh, my uncle always got it there. Uh, welcome to the show. You, you're going to talk about catching lightning in a bottle. How Merrill Lynch uh, revolutionized the financial world. Um, but before we get into that, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this story. Well, you know, I was very fortunate. My dad was one of the founding partners of Merrill Lynch. He was an older parent, so when I was born, he was 56, and then he died when I was only 11. So, you know, I knew him as a young boy, but I didn't really know what he did as a businessman. And a number of years after he passed away, I decided to join Merrill Lynch um, after getting my MBA at Wharton. And I spent 28 years there, and I must say I loved every day of my career other than the last day. And through my career, I learned a lot about my dad, about what he built, a lot about his ethics, his business practices. And after I left Merrill, and as you know, Merrill went into a decline and had to be rescued by Bank of America in 2007 and 8. And there's a lot of revisionist history written about Merrill. There were a lot of bad memories in those days. And I really felt it was incumbent upon me to tell the true history of Merrill, the firm that started in 1914 that brought Wall Street to Main Street, 
that really in many ways brought tremendous innovation to Wall Street and make sure that the true story of Merrill was told on its 100th anniversary, which happened on January 6th of 2014. Well, um, the reason you've worked, well, our program is about small business. Uh, 59% of our uh, uh, listeners are small business. They say, well, why did you ask him on? Because, uh, and this, this correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, they, uh, Merrill Lynch was the first one to bring Wall Street, as you said, to Main Street. And uh, and um, uh, many of the lessons that you talk about in your book, which, by the way, I thought was fabulous. In fact, I, somebody thought it was so fabulous, they took it off my, de- my desk. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but m- many of the things that you talked about, I think, have a great deal of... Uh, a, res, uh, a value to our, our audience, and so uh, I'm here. I like people, guests to talk. It makes my job easy. So uh, please begin and, and and tell us what you think, um, based on what you know about Merrill Lynch, how it could be applied to small business. Uh, well, sure. Well, you know. Maryland started as a small business. Charlie Merrill was a one-man operation in 1914. You know, he had a partner that joined him in 1915, uh, Eddie Lynch. In 1916, my dad joined him. And they were a very, you know, entrepreneurial small business. They found a niche in underwriting uh, the retail stores in the 1920s. And then Merrill actually got out of the, the business of brokerage in the 1930s after the crash in 1929, and he went into a very different field. He started Safeway Stores, which was a small grocery chain that grew into a big grocery chain. My dad worked for the E.A. Pierce Company in Chicago and then convinced Merrill to come back into the securities business in 1940 with this radical idea of you know, introducing the average American to investing in Wall Street. And it was really bringing Wall Street to Main Street, and by bringing Wall Street to Main Street, it was bringing Main Street to Wall Street. And what I found in my research of the history is that these people had a set of values and standards and ethics that really represented, you know, true business practice. And I think those examples are as applicable to small business as they are to big business. Unfortunately, Wall Street has lost its way in many ways. And when I talk about values, you know, their most important premise was the customer's interest has to come first. If you don't practice that, you don't have good business practice. If you can't read about what you've done on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the local paper the next day, you don't do it. And those ethics were really what I think allowed Merrill Lynch to grow from a small business to a big business, make mistakes along the way, but always come back to its moral compass. And that's the value that I think Merrill brought, and I think those principles are applicable to every business, small or big. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, because uh, across my desk uh, came a, a story about uh, 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 about how we've lost our um, ethical compass uh, in business and life. Uh, I don't know uh, if you're aware that they stripped the U.S. Uh, Little League champion champions of their title because the the managers uh, stretched the truth and, and the boundaries in order to get a mm-hmm. team. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, w- w- when we when we do that to little league, we're uh, in my view, I think we're uh, uh, we're losing something. Oh, absolutely! Um, you look you look at Brian Williams today. You know, it's shocking that an anchor like that would fudge the truth for his own, you know, career motivations. Well, well, having said that, and and uh, Merrill Lynch built up. Uh, a reputation for doing for its uh, man- managers, um, and it's certainly something. What is in your time with them? What are some of the other things you learned that have great application for small business? You know, I, I was really fortunate to work for a lot of great leaders, and you know, there's a, a big difference between managing and leading. And what I found about leaders is, first and foremost, they cared about their people. They listened. You know, they didn't have great hubris. They really were focused on doing the right thing and making sure that the team was following them and the team wanted to follow them, that they rewarded their people, they complimented their people, they created an environment which was exciting for people to become part of and was proud, uh, that people felt proud becoming you know, part of that, that particular team. And I think, you know, leadership is as important in a small business as it is in a big business. And unfortunately, sometimes you lose sight of the fact that leadership makes a total difference. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. But um, uh, one of the things I, I noticed uh, in my dealings with Merrill Lynch was the fact that the, uh, it, it's, it seemed to be a, a cooperative environment. Uh, how do you build a cooperative environment? It, 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 first off, am I right about the cooperative environment? I, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and I'll give you a good example that I learned. Uh, one of the, the mentors that I respected the most was a fellow named Dan Tully. And I was a newly appointed executive vice president. And I was meeting him with one day, and you know, he said, how are things going? And I said, you know, they're not going great because I'm not getting great support from the operations guy. And he said to me, have you talked to him? And I said, well, no. He picked up the phone. He called me. He said, Jay, come up here. Jay came up there. He said, okay, Wynn, you tell him face-to-face what the problems are. I don't want to hear you criticizing him behind his back. And that was a great lesson to me about teamwork. If I have an issue with a peer, I talk to him. We do it face-to-face. We don't backbite. And you know, that's the type of environment that a leader can create that you're really going to, we're going to operate as a team. We can criticize each other behind closed doors, but when we go forward, we're going to go forward as a united team. Well, having said said that, uh, a small business leader is uh, is often closer to his troops Mm -hmm. than in a big corporation. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, how, how does a leader... Uh, establish trust, and then um, maintain it, in your view? Well, you know, I think you have to walk the talk. I think you have to be uh, trustworthy. You have to be honest. You have to show that you care about your people. You know, and that doesn't mean you're soft. You can have high standards. But you really have to show respect for your people if you want them to show respect for you. You know, I truly believe in management by walking around. You know, a leader needs to be visible. A leader needs to be outreaching. And a leader needs to listen. And sometimes, you know, the most difficult form of communication is actually listening. And hearing is not listening. 
listening is really understanding what the people are saying to you and, you know, making sure that people appreciate that you indeed are listening to them. I, I couldn't agree more. But, uh, well, how do you deal with a manager that doesn't do that? Well, that's sometimes the tough decision of leadership is, you know, not every manager is going to come up to the standards, and sometimes you have to make changes. And sometimes those changes are with people you like, you've been with a long time, but if they're not performing, ultimately if they are destructive to the culture and the ethos that you're creating, you have to make a change. Well, uh, you see the changing American landscape. What do you see that's better about America, uh, business today? We're all criticizing the, uh, uh, and I'm starting with me. But you sound like a very optimistic person. What do you What do you see that that makes you optimistic about business today? Well, first of all, I'm very optimistic about the United States of America. I think we have the best environment to operate as a business. You know, we have a a culture, we have a rule of law, we have a democracy. And those things don't necessarily exist in many countries around the world. You know, we have a history of entrepreneurialism. We have an ability for people to take risk. And that is a tremendous advantage for business. You know, when I take a look at my generation, we're an aging generation, the baby booming generation. But I look at the millenniums. You know, I look at the generation coming up, and I say, wow. You know, these people are smart, they're motivated, and these people are going to create something that's going to be very special and even better than what we created as baby boomers. And, and the other thing I would say is all the successful people I've ever met in life are optimists. They see the glass as half full rather than half empty. And I remember one of my mentors at Merrill Lynch told me, he said, I've never met a rich pessimist. And by rich, he didn't mean just in the monetary form. That, that's a very, uh, you, you stopped me for a minute. That's a very good thought. Let me, let me go sideways for a minute because uh, I haven't been a writer and a journalist for a long time. But in writing, if the, your book is what, 400, 500 pages? It is a that's thick 608, book. 608, I think. <laughs> okay. It is a thick book. Um, and, and you said why? What uh, you know? Everybody says I want to write a book. Well, most people say it at one time or another. I could write a book, but what did you find was most difficult about writing your book? Because uh, you know, it, uh, it it really is quite good. Uh, if I didn't like it, I wouldn't say anything, and you wouldn't be on the program. But uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Um, well, but, I, I would say there are two things. I found the most difficult thing was starting, and the most difficult thing was ending. And what I meant by starting is you really had to decide, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit four to five years doing research, making sure it's not just anecdotal, but making sure that it's, it's historically you know, well-documented. And then at the end of the day, there was so much I could have written that it could have been 2,000 pages. So disciplining yourself to end. <laughs> That's a common one I've heard from uh, pe uh, people. How can uh, pe people find your book? Well, it's it's actually quite broadly circulated now. I self-published, and then Wiley Publishing bought the rights, so they have it on Barnes & Noble, on Amazon, 
it's in a number of bookstores, but you know most people are buying it online. It's in Kindle, so you can get books on tape. So it's really available in a, in a broad form. And I find that most people are probably shopping on Amazon.com. No. Well, let, let's stop a minute. That's very interesting because you're the first one. Uh, John Wiley had, had instituted a program about 18 months ago to identify books that are self-published and then pull them. Uh, uh, how did that come about, and uh, what are some of the things you learned about that? Well, you know, I realized that as a first-time author, I didn't think I was going to, you know, find a publisher. And secondly, I really didn't want a publisher editing or, you know, writing the book um, in a different way. I didn't want it to be sensational. I wanted it to be a good story, even though there are sensational things in it. So I decided to basically invest my own money, self-publish. I had great reception. And then out of the blue, I got a call from somebody at John Wiley saying, your book has been referred to us. Would you have an interest in talking to us about uh, us publishing it, republishing it for you? And that's really kind of, kind of serendipitously how it happened. Well, so all of us should be as lucky as that uh, because uh, it, 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 it really, for, A, it's a great book, and I can understand why they want it. It's right up their alley. But uh, it, I just... Uh, uh, felt that uh, I wanted to talk about it because uh, there are people that really uh, uh, have good books and often wonder how to do it, and you struck lightning. <laughs> I did. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, very very true. We uh, we we have our next guest on the line, and I just wanted to. to uh, Thank you, and uh, say what enjoyable uh, time it's been. The name of the book is Catching Lightning in a Bottle, How Merrill Lynch Revolutionized the Financial World. We, uh, come back next uh, later on in the year, and let's talk some more, if I may call you Win, Please, I'd love to. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Our next guest, and I hope I not pronounce your name correctly, I love Australian names. Koi uh, Thomas? It's a, it's actually Coel Tomei. So think of Noel with a K. It's uh, it's actually an Australian bird. So that's that's a whole other story, though. Oh, uh, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. You also, you also, I love this, Noosa's uh, Finest Yogurt, Y-O-G-H-U-R. Y-O-G-H-U-R-T, so that's that's how we spell it in Australia. Ah. Well, um, welcome to the program, um, Coel. Um, we always ask our guests first to say a little bit about their background, and I'm sure you have an interesting one. Aussies travel all over the world and do all kinds of fascinating things. They, they do like to go on extended walkabouts, that's for sure. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I was uh, born and raised in, in Australia in a, a little coastal town uh, called Cairns, which is in uh, sort of the most northeastern metropolis in Australia, um, you know, sort of the gateway to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, interestingly, my uh, parents were both North American. My mum, American, uh, my dad, Canadian, so... Um, 
have always sort of had that sort of international influence in my my upbringing. Um, you know, went to university in, in Queensland and graduated uh, with a marketing degree and like most good Australians, decided to, you know, head out on my my personal walkabout and uh, mine mine took me to the to the US um, and uh, that that walkabout has uh, lasted for more than 15 years, so I actually never never left. Um, and sort of, you know, during that time, I've uh, I've done a lot of different things um, since I've lived in, you know, a lot of different places in the western part of of the United States. You know, I've worked in in restaurants, I've worked in in nonprofits, um, and then I ultimately landed in in Boulder, Colorado in in 2000. I was uh working in IT and was was pretty pretty bored and pretty miserable to be to be quite honest and um it was sort of during that time that I I really sort of figured out that my calling was to work in in the food industry and um you know Boulder is is known to be uh uh, a hotbed of um, you know natural food startups and um, you know some that have gone on to you know quite to become quite large very successful companies and um, you know anybody that's trying to break into uh, an industry that they've you know never had um, any experience working in will you know attest to the fact that it's it's really sort of hard to make that that ultimate breakthrough and um, I was I was pretty determined and, and finally lucked out and was able to get a, a foot in the door with a, a young uh, beverage startup called Izzy Beverage and uh, ultimately joined them uh, in their operations team and um, during that time I, I discovered this amazing Australian yogurt and uh, it was you know, sort of the entrepreneurial spirit of um, of Izzy that you know really gave me the um, sort of inspiration to kind of go out and uh, try and start up uh, a food company on my on my own. Then, well, first off, tell us about the yogurt because it, it, it's different. It's ironical. Last week, my wife was in Australia and I told her to try it, and she did. She's a yogurt fanatic, so. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. But, um, but tell our audience about yogurt and why your yogurt and why it's different. Oh, absolutely. So, Nusa yogurt is uh, is Aussie yogurt, and it's uh, a whole milk, um, really thick, creamy, um, infused with uh, honey, giving it this really nice, sweet, tart flavor profile and. Um, ultimately, I, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. So, um, you know, being an expat, I go home to visit my family every year, and it was it was while I was working at um, the beverage company uh, that I discovered this what I describe as the best tasting yogurt in the world. Um, I was home visiting my um, family in, in Queensland, and I uh, was down at a, a local corner shop, um, and I found this, you know sort of spotted this, what I thought was yogurt, it was in a clear container, completely unbranded, but it had passion fruit puree, which is, is sort of this vibrant orange with these black pips. Um, so that was sort of what caught my eye, and I, I picked up a tub, discovered it was uh, called Queensland yogurt there, and 
few minutes later, I was back at my mum's place, you know, having my first bite and, you know, having this sort of like, you know, revelation about yogurt. Um, I was there with my now husband and uh, my mom ultimately was the one that said, you should, you should contact Queensland Yogurt um, and you know, tell them that you think this product's amazing and, and see if they'd be interested in doing something with you. And so I, I picked up the phone. I have, you know, found out that they were, uh, you know, a family business, um, but were sort of too busy to entertain anything beyond what they were doing. And so I ultimately flew back to Colorado and, and basically obsessed about this yogurt for the next two years. Um, you know, fast forward, I'm, I'm heading back to see my family and, this time I actually had my mum call the company and she organized uh, a meeting with the entire um, Queensland Yogurt family and uh, we ended up meeting at a local surf club and um, uh, over a long lunch with, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, there were a few beers uh, over, <laughs> over lunch um, and uh, I was able to convince them it would be a great idea to essentially go into business and um, rebrand and, and launch this product in the U.S. So that was, you know, the ultimate genesis of all of this was how could I eat this delicious Australian yogurt more than once a year? And, um, you know, I think being an expat, you know, you hear about sort of the American dream and, um, you know, there was sort of that inspiration and then, you know, being part of an entrepreneurial company and, um, you know, sort of drawing from that inspiration um, really gave me sort of that fuel to give it a go. Um, and, you know, we've created this really unique product that, um, you know, a little bit of good timing with, with Greek yogurt sort of exploding and, and sort of bringing all this attention to the category. But, um, you know, we've been able to create something that's just very unique um, and really um, okay. resonates with, with the American palate. Okay, let, let, well, let's stop. Uh, you, you made all of our mouths water, but we don't know a few things. <laughs> first, first, first off, it's, uh, spell out your product's name. So it's Nusa, it's N-O-O-S-A, and yogurt, and we spell yogurt with an H in Australia, so it's Y-O-G-H-U-R-T. There is a T at the end of it. I have it on there the There is thing. a T at the end. I know. I know. We 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 tend to drop some of our our consonants in Australia. Okay. Now, having said that, um, what is unique about it? Again, it's you know it's at a time when you know there's been sort of this obsession about no fat, low fat. Um, we really believe in simple ingredients, whole ingredients, and and having a great tasting experience. And that's what this yogurt really delivers. It's it's whole milk. We um, source milk from you know Colorado family farms, so it's incredibly fresh. We're actually on site at Morning Morning Fresh Dairy, which is a family farm, and in northern Colorado and uh, also one of our business partners um, and they were actually in our early days um, completely supplying all of our milk so literally the cows were a hundred meters away from you know where we were actually um, piping the milk in and, and batching it um, so we've always been really committed to do you know local fresh ingredients um, 
real ingredients that you can actually, you know, read read the ingredient statement and understand exactly what's in there and what you're going to get to eat. Um, but it's 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 the creaminess of the yogurt and it's the the taste profile. I mean, we infuse it with honey, um, so it gives it this very unique flavor profile. And um, you know, it's really hard to. I, I wish I could like you know virtually deliver yogurt to all of your all of your oh, listeners oh, um, to experience. Okay. It's because tasting is believing. Okay. Now, having said that, you now have this new product. You're back in America. What, how did you go about? Uh, uh, creating your company and marketing it? So, again, very fortunate to live in a community that um, really, you know, fosters uh, young entrepreneurs, uh, especially food entrepreneurs. And um, I was, you know, also very fortunate to create a partnership with um, the original Australian family, um, uh, our dairy farmer in northern Colorado. And, each of us brought something unique to the table, um, you know, the Australians with the, the know-how of actually making the yogurt, um, Rob Graves from, you know, really helping us navigate the whole dairy landscape in the U.S., which is, you know, heavily regulated, um, highly complex, and, and very different from what, um, you know, happens in Australia. And then my experience from, you know, my first uh adventure at, at Izzy Beverage Company from both, you know, an operational and uh, marketing perspective. So we all we all had something unique to kind of bring to the table and um, where we where there were gaps sort of in, in knowledge sets, um, we're certainly not afraid to, you know, really reach out to um, our network of, of people in, in Colorado. Um, and then, you know, from a marketing perspective, we focused on really sort of the, the grassroots aspect. Um, we were in, you know, local farmers' markets. Um, we really, you know, invested heavily against, you know, demos uh, at our retailers. And Facebook, you know, so that was 2010 when we launched. And, you know, Facebook was really starting to um, become very prominent for businesses to really connect and um, have that, you know, one-on-one -on -one voice with with their con consumer, and essentially, I was the marketing team, and you know, I knew that there was other platforms available, but you know, when you're a small startup, you you focus on what you can do best, and rather than trying to do too many things at once, um, we we really did focus on making the best tasting, highest quality yogurt, and then from a marketing perspective, um, you know, from a social media gorilla, gorilla style, um, really having that um, sort of authentic conversation with our customers. And, you know, even as we've scaled and, and been very fortunate to grow and um, sort of become a national brand, we've really held true to those, you know, original principles um, and that's really translated uh, with a, a pretty rabid fan base. Oh. Well, okay, that was my next question. You're now available uh, 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 nationally. In, in what chains? We are available nationally through Target. Um, we're also in Kroger, which um, is almost you know all the way across the country. Uh, we're in Safeway. 
and then we're in Whole Foods. Uh, we're in a lot of great, uh, you know, independent uh, regional uh, retailers as well. So if you go to our website, we've got a, a great store locator that you can actually plug in your zip code. And uh, it, what, wait, wait, what? What is your website? Our website is www.nusayogurt.com. So that's N-O-O-S-A. Y O G H U R T dot com. And how did you manage to get into all of these? Uh, I, I know how difficult it is for uh, a small company to break into them. How did you do it? That's the question my audience would like to know. Yeah, and it's, it's a great question. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's the food industry is is very um, very competitive. Um, you know. We knew that it was a proven successful product in Australia, um, so we really we really believed um, and were very passionate uh, about the product. And um, one would not know it thing. from your one would not know it from your presentation. <laughs> Pretty passionate. I I, lo- I do love eating this yogurt. Let me tell you, um, and passion fruit is my favorite. So um, you know, it was I would say it was a combination of really having a good strategy from from the start like we we knew that we had to prove ourselves out in our home market sort of in our backyard and um you know if you're in the food industry everybody knows that local is is a big trend so retailers um really are looking to embrace and you know form those partnerships with with local companies so we were very fortunate to have Whole Foods in the Rocky Mountain be our first customer. Um, they were huge advocates and uh, gave us a lot of a lot of support and sort of runway. Um, and then our next retailer was uh, King Supers, which is um, a Kroger banner, and that was that was a little bit of uh, a case of um, who you know and uh, a bit of good luck. Um, there was another brand that was um, discontinuing uh, their yogurt line, so uh, King Supers had some available shelf space, and um, through my Izzy connections, um, I was sort of introduced to the buyer there, and um, I think a combination of a great-tasting product and the fact that we were local um, was a huge selling point. So um, sort of within a four-month time frame, we were able to be in, you know, the premium uh, natural specialty retailer and then also in um, one of the most successful uh, conventional retailers in the country. And um, that really sort of set us up for success because we were able to prove ourselves out in, in sort of two different channels. And it sort of created this amazing case study for us as we looked to expand um, beyond beyond our home market. But uh, ultimately, it was you know really focusing and building great relationships with those partners, um, being patient and not trying to grow too quickly, because um, that can can create you know a whole set of um, complexities that can kind of spiral and get out of control. So um, I think it was a lot of determination, really focusing on great partnerships. Um, and having patience to know when was sort of the right 
time to to take that next step and and try and grow and and go after you know new relationships and new retail partners. Well, you you summed up uh, uh, how a good entrepreneur uh, should do it. Well, uh, what are your plans for expansion? So we have been um, again so fortunate. You know, we've just celebrated our fifth birthday. Uh, it's it's seems like a lot's happened in the past five years. You know, I, I've launched a business, gotten married, and had a baby. So some pretty big milestones um, for both me personally, and then you know the brand um, now as as a national national brand. Um, we're currently working feverishly to do. Uh, I think this is. I think plant upgrade number or expansion number four or five. It's it's hard to keep track. We, um, you know, heading up sales. It's like okay, go sell. We've got you know we've got a lot of blue sky, and then all of a sudden we would sort of hit capacity constraints, and uh, they'd be like, you have to stop selling. Um, you know, so it's been it's been a, a pretty wild adventure um, for the entire entire team. But um, we're in, investing for uh, a lot of a lot of growth um, in our future, and we're hoping this gives us uh, even more runway. And um, we think we're in a really great position because there's a lot of trends that are really now um, coming out that fat is not as evil as as once um once thought and you know that that really makes us excited that um we can sort of share that you know whole milk indulgent experience um with people uh across the country well um uh let me ask you, are are you centered in boulder so uh, I'm based in Boulder. I was, we have a small satellite team here, and then uh, the rest of the team is actually headquartered right on site at the dairy uh, uh, Morning Fresh up in, in northern Colorado. So um, they, have, they have a much more scenic, um, scenic view than I do necessarily. I, I look out onto a little uh, car park, and they all look out into the foothills, and, and they can see all the happy cows. Out in out in the fields. Well, let me but let me ask you a question. Let, let's talk distribution for a moment. Uh, sure. How do you, uh, if Colorado, and certainly not Northern Colorado, is certainly not a, a distribution center. How do you distribute? Your Colorado in general is is not a huge freight freight hub. Um, and that's that's certainly been challenging as as we've grown and um, you know sort of shipping product to you know both coasts, both west and east. And um, we've been you know I think from my operational background and and as we've as we've grown and and been able to bring in you know additional uh, smart people into the equation. Um, We've got a team of people that have been really savvy and um, have been really smart about, you know, I guess sort of building loads where um, it's not all TL, all LTL freight, um, where we actually build our own truckloads and, you know, they'll be doing sort of multiple stops um, because that's really created, you know, a lot of efficiency and, and savings um, on sort of the freight logistics aspect. Um, you know, when we started, we only had 
I think 28 days of shelf life. We're now at at 40 days, so that that certainly helps as we you know distribute further afield from from Colorado. Um, but we've had to you know we've been savvy in the sense that you know we've set certain guidelines with you know our retail partners, um, which are not always optimal um, from their perspective, but it's allowed us to really manage um, producing our inventory in sort of a just-in-time um, environment, and that allows us to really produce, you know, produce and ship the freshest product um, given sort of the complexities of uh, freight logistics and, you know, working with, with different distribution models. The name of your product again and your website Noosa Yogurt. So um, just a quick little tidbit uh, for, for everyone listening. Noosa is actually this amazing little coastal town in southeast Queensland, um, and it's home to our original recipe. Uh, and if you ever get the opportunity to go there, it's got a really cool little national park where you, you might be fortunate to see a wild koala. Um, but it's Noosa Yogurt, N-O-O-S-A yogurt y-o-g-h-u-r-t dot com and uh, are you going to be at the fancy food show in New York this uh, uh, this June or July we won't be at fancy we won't be at fancy foods but we will be out at Expo West in Anaheim next month Um, so we're really excited to to be out there that's um, obviously one of the premier natural foods uh, expos in the country and uh, we've got some exciting new flavors and uh, innovative packaging innovation that we're excited to unveil there. Uh, are you available in New Jersey? That's where I am. You've made my mouth water. <laughs> we are available in New Jersey. So we're available at um, uh, select ShopRite stores. We're um, at King's. We're at... Uh, stop and shop in their uh, natural section. And again, if you go to our website, there is a store locator where you can put in your zip code and uh, you can even identify the flavor that you're looking for and uh, it should give you the nearest uh, retailer where you can find us. Coel, I pronounced it right. Coel, right? You did pronounce it right, yes. Coel, thank you for a very illuminating uh, time with us today. We really, really enjoyed it, and uh, we wish you good luck. And uh, uh, I can't do it tomorrow, but on Friday I'm going to go out and get some. Fantastic. Thanks, Donna. really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, and we'll be, ta- we'll be uh, hopefully talking to you again, and good luck. Sounds great. Cheers. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you